Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay. All right. Let's do it. Hello. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. We have today a first-time combo. I'm here with Jane Coaston and Sarah Cliff, Weeds hosts Old and New coming together. Um, It is also going to be history-making next week and all throughout the month of October. We're going to have extra Weeds episodes on Wednesdays. We heard you like the Weeds, so we're giving you more Weeds as we get through this midterm cycle. It's five-week sort of sprint for the future of America. I'm excited. I'm doing next Wednesday's episode. Yeah. It'll be good. It's going to be awesome. Meanwhile... Speaking of the future of America, yesterday, uh, Jane and I were in Austin, Texas. Uh, We did a live show about the border wall, and we are hoping to have audio of that for you all someday. But here in Washington, Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Ford were testifying, and I find this to be really one of the most difficult emotionally, politically moments that we have seen I watched Ford's opening statement. I did not see the subsequent questioning. The opening statement seemed quite moving to me. And from what I can gather, Republicans didn't have any any goods on her in the end. They didn't walk out of that first morning session being like, aha, we caught her up in something or her story doesn't make sense or she has a motive to lie. They didn't really impugn her credibility or take her down in any way. Yeah. So, I mean, I was here in D.C. and I was watching the testimony, as I know a lot of people listening to this show, I'm sure, were. And I think the thing that happened is there's an expectation by Republican senators going into this that this would not go well for her, that she would struggle, that something would go wrong. And that's really not what happened. It seemed like coming out of this, even if you looked at the coverage On Fox News, there was kind of this widespread acceptance of her as a credible witness. It was a really emotional experience, you know, watching her testify. I think it felt clear to anyone watching that she was nervous. You know, I think one thing that was a huge contrast between her and Kavanaugh's testimony for me 
is that she was very open about the fact that this was a number of years ago. There were certain things, you know, that she kind of felt a little bit fuzzier on. Whereas with Kevin, I was like, I never drank. I never had sex. It was all these absolutes. Whereas hers, I felt like she came off as a lot more human and nervous and, you know, very polite and, you know, quieter in her testimony, especially in contrast with the Kavanaugh testimony later to the point that, you know, you, you had a lot of, you know, Republicans, commentators on Fox saying she seems like a credible witness, that it seems like something happened to her. And it puts the Republicans in this really odd position, you know, that they've been in for a while, but I think are in even more after this, of saying this person seems credible. It seems like something happened to her. But we're not going to change where we're going, that we're going to move forward with Kavanaugh. And it it almost, it like says this thing really matters, but also it doesn't matter at all. Because that's somewhat became clear, right, is that they didn't care at all, right? right? They didn't say, of course, they didn't listen to her and spike his nomination. I understand that. But they didn't listen to her and say, oh, now we'd really better hear from Deborah Ramirez, Right. You could have said, look, I will admit when I saw this Ramirez thing come out, like out of the blue last minute, I was like, man, this is bullshit. But I just listened to Dr. Ford. She doesn't sound like she was bullshitting. So now I want to hear more. Now I want to talk to Mark Judge. Now I want to talk to whoever this squee guy was. Right. They didn't respond to finding her more credible than they had been expecting by doing anything. Instead, Kavanaugh showed up. He blustered about the Clintons, and then he he just – he said a lot of things that aren't true. I, I've been obsessed with this. People have been listening to this from the get-go. But like Kavanaugh has not conducted himself honestly throughout this process. Just yesterday, he said that Beach Week Ralph Club was about him having a weak stomach, not about drinking to excess. He said that boofing was a reference to flatulence, which, I mean, I can't believe we had to run this down. But like we had a story, others had a story where they like interviewed people who were high school students in Maryland in the early 80s. And like boofing is short for boofoo is short for butt fucking. I don't know, man. But like, That's what people say, right? He said— Renate alumnus. Yeah, there was this thing with Renate alumnus. But it's clear what was going on there. And then he was asked a question about it, and he got indignant as if Democrats were smearing Renate somehow. What else was there? Oh, he kept saying that it was legal to drink as an 18-year-old at the time he was 18 in Maryland, which isn't true. It's something he he said on Fox. He said testimony there. And all this stuff, it's like— He said in his yearbook that he was the treasurer of the 100 kegs or bust club. And then he tried to say in congressional testimony that he wasn't a heavy drinker, you know. And then he got indignant at people asking these questions about his drinking and said, well, you know, he went to Yale, right? And like, I just, I don't know what to say to that, you know. I know people who went to Yale. I went to Harvard. People drank a lot. There were sexual assaults happening on campuses of very fancy schools. And then I just saw, you know, Jeff Flake this morning say, well, we have a presumption of innocence in this country, which is true, and that Brett Kavanaugh is entitled to due process, which I don't really think is true. He's a Supreme Court nominee, not a criminal defendant, and he's going to vote for him. But it was the Republicans 
didn't create a process. And while, of course, Kavanaugh has a presumption of innocence, if you take the stand in your own defense in a trial and then you say a bunch of things that aren't true, right, it's in the rules of evidence. Like that is considered damning evidence against you. But I think it's important to note that none of this mattered. None of it. Like talking about the yearbook or his testimony because you saw like Lindsey Graham basically announced his campaign to replace Jeff Sessions as attorney general by becoming, you know, the biggest fan of Brett Kavanaugh, who is not a member of the Kavanaugh family. And I think it's worth noting the degree to which, you know, you saw at the Values Voters Summit earlier this week, even before the testimony even happened, that you were seeing the same kinds of defenses of this. What I thought was interesting was the degree to which Kavanaugh, again, went with the affirmative defense of, like, these things just never happened, whereas a lot of his allies seemed to go with the, well, if it happened, it's not such a big deal, which are two different things, which I think is worth noting. But, you know, if you're listening to this and you feel anything like I do, this has been an incredibly exhausting and enraging week. And I feel as if it is for everyone involved (laughs) I think that there were a lot of conservatives who saw Kavanaugh's testimony and, you know, I saw there's a National Review piece that kind of compared it to the, you know, have you no shame moment during McCarthyism. This has been an inherently emotional discussion. And I feel as if, you know, there are many things that Congress is good at, some of them. Yeah, but handling something at this moment of this importance is not one of them. And it's worth noting that, you know, what you're pointing out, Matt, about the apparent, like, discrepancies between his testimony and the evidence that we have, nothing was going to convince Lindsey Graham that something should be done. That was never going to happen. The fact that this testimony happened at all, which was an interesting conversation because I think a lot of people, especially on the right, kind of just went with, there's no way Ford actually shows up. And then she actually did. And I think that in and of itself was a surprise to many on the right. But I think that the idea that there could have been something or that someone would have said that would have caused this nomination to not go forward, barring complete insanity, not not even the insanity level we've reached right now, but just complete abject insanity is unfortunately untrue. And I think, I mean, it felt like to me like such a lesson and why women don't come forward in these situations because you have someone like Dr. Ford who, you know, decided to come forward after much internal deliberation. She goes to Washington. She sits in front of this panel for four hours. She relives one of the most horrific experiences in her life. She has a panel of people questioning her about it. She really puts it all out there. And, like, to what end? Just to have, you know, this— really long, searing conversation where she has probed on everything from, you know, what's seared in her mind of the laughter of Brett Kavanaugh and Mark Judge to questions about her fear of flying and they're pulling out different maps and, like, kind of treating her like a prosecution. And, and like, to what end? Like we've been saying earlier, it didn't really seem like there's any space for this to change the outcome of what senators were going to do on this. And maybe that will change. You know, we're taping this at like 10 in the morning on Friday. Maybe we will see Susan Collins or another senator change their vote around this. But I think it felt like almost, you know, on the one hand, you had a woman doing something incredibly brave and incredibly 
difficult. And, you know, maybe that will give other women the strength they would need to come forward. On the other hand, it's kind of like, well, what's the point? She put herself out there. She th- th- This is going to be the thing, like, that Anita Hill, that Christine Blasey Ford, like, this will be what their name is known for in the public space. And, like, to what end if, you know, as we just saw moments before we started taping, that Republican senators decided to move Brett Kavanaugh through the committee 24 hours after this happened. I mean, to make the case that she has made a valuable contribution here in the end, Clarence Thomas was pushed through with, frankly, the majority of the Democrats on the committee not taking the issue seriously. They held the majority. They had control of the process and they did what essentially the Republicans have done here, refusing to call additional witnesses, so on and so forth. That is a change. You know, I think it's pretty clear that Dianne Feinstein's staff like initially didn't really want to go there with this just as Ford herself was reluctant. But she did eventually come forward and Democrats did, you know, rally to have a real investigation, to call in corroboration. Republicans, I mean, the saving grace of Kavanaugh lying to an extent is that I don't think they believe that Kavanaugh is innocent. I think they just don't care. But they did at least do the country the grace of pretending that this would be bad, which I hope sends some kind of, you know, message to the future that has some kind of positivity to it. Other people, Deborah Ramirez, Julie Swetnick came forward and – People in the country, you know, people in the press, people on the committee, people in the Congress want to hear from them. And it's just incredibly shitty that the Republicans on that committee decided that they didn't want to do anything about it. But it is different from where we were. I mean, Kavanaugh is the least popular Supreme Court justice on record. His poll numbers are below Bork. They're below Harriet Myers. Clarence Thomas, in the end, got on because he was popular. You know, the majority of the country believed him and didn't believe Anita Hill. And I think that's really unfortunate time. But, like, that's not what happened here. It's not like America shrugged its shoulders in indifference. It's similar to you know, the situation we saw with the tax bill, to an extent, the situation we saw with some of this healthcare stuff, where there's an element of the political arena where people argue and people talk and people try to make their case. But we also just like we have elections on a regular schedule. And the vast majority of the Republican caucus has just shown time and again that they are indifferent to the facts of public opinion, which is, I don't know. I mean, we'll see how that works out for them. Yeah. It's interesting also because, you know, I wrote about Robert Bork's uh, failed 1987 Supreme Court nomination. And it's interesting because a lot of Republicans have brought up the concept of Borking, which they mean trying to slam someone who is up for a high-level position with something irrelevant to their position. But what actually happened to Robert Bork is that Robert Bork did not prepare for his 
testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee because uh, his good friend Antonin Scalia told him he didn't have to, which is why he said things like, you know, when asked about his mild support for a poll tax, his response was, well, it was just $1.50. When someone asked, why do you want to serve in the Supreme Court? He said, because it would be an intellectual feast. And the response from people watching this was, wow, that guy is, okay, he has a whole lot of something. So, you know, the actual story of Robert Bork is that based on his writings and positions and when he was Solicitor General, him taking part in the Saturday Night Massacre under Nixon, you know, that was what played into Robert Bork not becoming a Supreme Court justice. But it's worth noting that with Harriet Myers and with this idea that popularity would play into how a Supreme Court justice is perceived by either party, you know, I think that that's something where we, we talk a lot about how people are polled and we think about that as being something that would matter to the people who are putting forward judges for these positions. But if you can get a conservative-leaning judge on the Supreme Court, I don't think anyone cares how he polls right now. And his unpopularity, I think that they're kind of assuming, you know, it's a lifetime position. By 30 years from now, we would have kind of forgotten about this. Like how, you know, I think for a lot of Americans— Clarence Thomas is, he's a member of the Supreme Court. His wife is highly involved in Tea Party activism, and he's also known for never speaking. And so I think that there is this idea that, yes, he's very unpopular, but 30 years from now, you won't remember how unpopular he was. You'll remember that he was the key vote in deciding to overturn Planned Parenthood v. Casey or something like that. And so, you know, Kavanaugh's unpopularity, I think that they think of as being kind of, well, the polls told us that Hillary Clinton was going to win in 2016, so polls don't mean anything. Also, well, I think we might be overselling the unpopularity as well. There was a Marist poll that came out yesterday that, um, you know, basically asked if the allegations are true, should Kavanaugh still be confirmed? And one of the things, I don't know, maybe this shouldn't surprise me, that surprised me, but they found that 54% of Republicans say yes, that even like, like even accepting that these are true, that he should be confirmed. So while it is true that he is pulling at low numbers when you think about, like, who these senators are wanting to show up at the midterms. Like, that group of people, like, seems pretty okay with the idea of confirming Kavanaugh. Like, if you cut it another way, 48 percent of white evangelicals said yes to the same question, that even if these allegations are true, that he should be confirmed to the Supreme Court. So, you know, one of the questions that keeps coming into my mind is, like, well, why is stick with this guy. Like, why not jettison him? There are other conservative legal thinkers. Like, it's not like he is the only person you could nominate to the Supreme Court. And like, what this poll tells me, and it's a pretty dispiriting answer, is just, it doesn't matter to a lot of people. Like, this is fine. This poll is showing that 54% Republican voters are fine with this, and perhaps even more than fine, because this could be the guy who, you know, is on the court who could provide the fifth vote to overturn Casey, to overturn Roe, and to get that done before the midterms to kind of, you know, get people out to support them, to say, look what we've done. We've got this great conservative justice on the court. Um, You know, I think a lot of the people I talk to think that Christine Blasey Ford's accusations, they really matter. But this poll suggests there's also a lot of people who think, you know, it doesn't even matter if they prove to be true or not. Yeah, I want to take a break and then I want to dig into this because this is what was not discussed at the committee, but I think is actually the most important piece of the whole thing. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. 
With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I got to watch uh, some of the Kavanaugh hearings at a American Airlines Admirals Club in Texas, uh, which is a good place to put your finger on high socioeconomic status Republicans thinking about hot button issue. And I was struck by two older, you know, and this was not like fake out, like aha, the pulse of the people. These were <laughs> these were like Republican women. They they were you know very clear, right? They weren't like open minded about this. But they both said to me what. Rep. Kramer said about this, what I think a number of Republicans have sort of said, you know, running their mouths as not their official position, but that like not that the accusations are false, but that the accusations are a form of dirty pool that to throw up against a successful in his career family man, Something about something he did at a party when he was 17 is just illegitimate, right? That like what he did was just not that bad and that it was bad faith of Democrats to bring it up. You know, she mentioned Bill Clinton and various other things. But really just to make the point that like in her view, this is like a boys will be boys kind of situation and – it's just obviously bunk to throw someone out of a, a Supreme Court gig based on something from that long ago that she saw as fundamentally minor. And I think that we have seen time and again in the the Me Too epic that there is like a an unargued question around this, around like what is actually 
bad, you know, and like how far back is relevant. And this keeps popping up. You know, we we had it in this New York Review of Books controversy. Um, we had it when, you know, our colleague, Laura McGann, wrote her story about Glenn Thrush. And then the New York Times was like, they didn't say she was wrong. They just decided they didn't care, right? Which I think is where Republicans are on Kavanaugh. Constance Grady did a great, great piece for Vox. I mean, she's looking, she's looking a little bit narrowly at 16 Candles, but you can also think about there's a scene in Rocky that I think you would consider date rape today. One of the major plot elements of, of Revenge of the Nerds is a guy, quote unquote, tricks a woman into thinking that he's her boyfriend and they have sex. Blade Runner, also from the early 80s, has a thing of like Harrison Ford forcibly not letting somebody leave his, his apartment. And all of these things, right, from the late 70s and early 80s, they're not wrong, right? Like clearly, like to understand the fiction, if you understand how storytelling works, like these things that these men do in these movies, they're not depicted as bad things. They're things that heroic characters do that they receive no criticism for and that you're meant to sympathize with as the audience. And like we have had a change to an extent in our culture and there's just this void that I think we're shouting across where like it it just – it seems overwhelmingly likely to me that like on July 1st, exactly what she said happened, right? That like these guys that got her in a room, that closed the door, they were like, ha, 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 jumping on the bed, pushing her down. And she wriggled away and ran downstairs. And then in their minds, because they didn't like chase after her and, you know, like chain her up in a dungeon or something, it's just no big deal. Right? And that like a lot of people, and it's not strictly, there's a gender element to the division of opinion on it, but also just an age element and a political element. And, like, there's just a big, mostly conservative constituency out there that just, like, does not think this kind of behavior is seriously wrong. Well, I I think I I have two things on that because it's interesting that, again, that defense is not the one Brett Kavanaugh used at all. Like, Brett Kavanaugh was not using a boys will be boys defense. Brett Kavanaugh was being like, I absolutely positively did not do this defense. But he was also, what's weird about it is that he so stridently denied that he did it, but then he, like, so obviously was bullshitting. It, to me, was like a real defense in depth, you know, where he would, like, Ford, to try to persuade you of her honesty, acted vulnerable, acted humble, whereas Kavanaugh didn't do that. Like, he acted defiant and blatantly dishonest. Like, he wasn't really trying to persuade people that he didn't do this, I think. I think the other thing that's interesting is when like, the concept of the Me Too movement has been all around for a lot longer than I think most people know. But you know, when Ronan Farrow came out with a story about Harvey Weinstein in the, in the New Yorker, I think because the concept of Hollywood is so apart from both conservatives and most liberals, like the idea of this guy – jerking off into a plant and just, you know, ruining the lives of people like famous actress or formerly famous actresses is so apart from the everyday experiences of most Americans. You know, already like Harvey Weinstein is the kind of person where it's like if you watch enough movies and, you know, think a lot about 90s movies, especially because he was kind of 
largely credited with pushing forward the kind of pulp fictionization of film in the mid to late 90s. There are a lot of people who, one, haven't seen Pulp Fiction and, two, don't much care about that. And so the idea that this person should be cut out of society, we're kind of like, oh, okay. But, you know, I want to push back a little bit because I think, you know, and I'm sure anyone who has ever tweeted anything about Kristen Gillibrand would know that the responses you get from liberals about, like, Kristen Gillibrand ruined Al Franken's life and whatever Al Franken did wasn't that bad. And it's not fair because, you know, we got rid of our guy and they won't get rid of their guys. This idea that, like, you need to have this weird prisoner exchange between conservatives and liberals. Like, okay, you get rid of Roy Moore and we'll get rid of Al Franken. Not that the two are on the parallel, to be clear. But I think that with the nationalization of politics, the idea that you think of someone, you know, Al Franken is not from my state, but I have spoken to people, you know, who are from D.C. or from my home state of Ohio who talk about Al Franken as if he is like showing up at your local fish fry to talk to you about, you know, housing issues in your local community, which he was not doing. And so I think that how we hold some of these public figures so closely. And you see that with how many conservatives, you know, are reacting to Brett Kavanaugh, a person whom they have not met, who they have never interacted with, but they are defending him in a way that seems so personal. And I think it's because, one, you see Brett Kavanaugh as this tabula rasa upon which you can project your own concerns about, you know, what if I was quote-unquote wrongfully accused of something or what if that happened to my husband or what if that happened to someone in my family but at the same time you saw people doing that to Al Franken as well of saying like you know what if what if I did this thing that was in a photo and then it just got misconstrued and then you know I was trying to take a stand for justice in the American way and no one understood so I think that there's an element of the personalization of politics that is at play here where we think about the fact that we're having this giant discussion about a nominee to the Supreme Court. I think one speaks to the increased importance of the Supreme Court in our daily lives and also in how we think about politics more generally. But the fact that you see this among both liberals and conservatives with certain political figures where you're defending them as if you were defending yourself. Right. But Franken, I think, proves the point, right? Like Franken had his defenders. But like at the end of the day, because younger people, more left-wing people and women have more clout in the Democratic Party than they do in the Republican Party, like he got tossed overboard, whereas the Republican Party is made up of older people, more conservative people, more authoritarian people, and more men. And I think like in an important way that, like, we keep not debating forthrightly, like, they don't agree with the changed norms about consent and sexual behavior that have happened, right? And it's like, this is part of the, like, endless mocking of college students and political correctness and, like, loving Donald Trump and, like, all this stuff, I think, that, like, there was in the living past of America a very different set of like official social norms about how young men should behave toward young women and people who – like I was a tiny baby at that time. But people who were 
grownups at that time. Like those were the norms because the people who were grownups then thought they should be the norms and they're not dead. They're like lurking in the bushes and then this stuff comes out and they're like – well, you know. Well, and I, I felt like a strain of that came through in Kavanaugh. Like, I felt like he was speaking to that a bit. There was this one section where he was um, talking about beer a lot, where he kept saying, you know, I like to have a beer. A lot of Americans uh, like to have beers. Like, you know, is everyone Amer- – basically, like, asking if every American who wants to have a beer is also going to be accused of sexual assault. That it, it just – it seemed like so much indignation that this question would possibly even be – explored and that he, a Georgetown prep and a Yale graduate, would have to, you know, degrade himself to having these questions asked of him, like almost an incredulity that he he would have to submit to this even after we saw someone give this testimony that most people have said seemed very, very credible. And, you know, I think one of the things that will be interesting coming out of this is You know, I was reading, um, Dylan Scott did a nice piece for us kind of about this question of, well, why do Republicans stick with Kavanaugh and kind of getting into this issue that they really want to confirm someone before the midterms to keep their base energized, to say, look what we did for you. You know, you should turn out at the polls. And, you know, I think we have the polling and stuff that suggests that this isn't going to turn people off from the Republican Party, or at least not their base. But you have the counter dynamic of these sort of things seem to be really energizing Democratic voters that you're seeing like a lot of protests. You're seeing, you know, a lot of what I was seeing all over my Instagram feed, which admittedly leans quite liberal, is a lot of people posting about this. And even if this isn't alienating Republican voters, it seems kind of like me, like a misfire, because it seems to be galvanizing the other side in a really, really strong way that could, you know, matter in the midterms as well. And I yeah. think not just in the in the midterms, but in the judiciary. I mean, I don't know that conservatives fully appreciate how much they've benefited from liberal demobilization on judicial issues. That like to the extent that rank and file liberals care about the judiciary at all, they care about abortion rights, which obviously is an important topic. But like conservatives are mobilized across the whole span of issues, right? And like in any movement, some Republicans are very jazzed up about abortion on the conservative side, but others about guns. I think it's notable. I mean, something that's rarely been talked about, but like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has been a really solid Brett Kavanaugh ally from day one. From the press release, they put money into the campaign. They are not backing Brett Kavanaugh because they want to return the right to regulate abortion to the states, right? Brett Kavanaugh is going to completely dismantle economic regulation in the United States to the best of his ability. And in his defense, Anthony Kennedy was also doing that. There's been this whole series of rulings from the five conservatives about like you can't have labor unions, you can't regulate this and that, all like total nonsense in my opinion. Liberals have not – really taken strong note of that. Like the Obamacare ruling, right, on zero textual basis with no legitimacy for no reason at all, they just struck down Medicaid expansion, have caused millions of people to lack health insurance. Thousands of people have died as a result of that ruling. But we all kind of paraded it around as a liberal victory because they didn't toss out the whole law on spurious grounds. And I mean, I hope if anything good comes out of this, it will be that, like, people will understand that, like, this is a fanatically reactionary group of people who have been installed on the court. Like, two of them 
perjuring themselves, sexually harassing women, four of them installed by presidents who didn't win the popular vote. Like it is a really profound during a problem beyond the midterms and beyond the specifics of this allegation. But like this shows the the character of the people involved in this kind of thing to just like blithely lie out of ambition and hubris. I want to make a point on this because among conservatives, it's a different argument being made here. And this is from um, reportedly Eric Erickson, who's a conservative pundit who's been very talkative about the Kavanaugh nomination, he said that we all understand that this is the most mainstream pick the president is going to offer. If Kavanaugh is rejected, my colleagues understand the president is going to escalate and they don't want that, said a Republican senator to him. Uh And I think this is an interesting point because as I, you know, I made up a delightful song about Amy Coney Barrett, queen of the judicial frontier, because I just keep like conservatives wanted Amy Coney Barrett. They were jazzed up about Amy Coney Barrett. And I think it's interesting the degree to which Trump did not watch Amy Coney Barrett. And I think that it's worth noting that there is a degree to which there's an intra-conservative debate about this very subject of the courts. Because I think for many conservatives, they recognize, one— The Supreme Court should not have the primacy in American life that it does, but it does because Congress is Congress. Two, so the Supreme Court is going to have the level of primacy that it does, there should be majority conservative jurists. Three, the best conservative jurists should be on the Supreme Court. But there seems to be some argument that Brett Kavanaugh is not inherently the best conservative jurist to be on the Supreme Court, but he is the one who I think Republicans generally think, and you you heard this from Susan Collins as well, they think this is someone who will be tolerable. And it's an interesting argument that instead of, you know, I've had friends who were at Notre Dame who were taught by Amy Coney Barrett, and they're like, yes, she's very conservative, but, you know, she was a great professor and very fair. And you hear from people um, within the right this idea that, you know, we wanted Barrett, but... The moment we got Kavanaugh, we're like, okay, we're going to fight for Kavanaugh because they understand that the goal is, you know, get someone conservative on the court in the first place. But I also want to note that the job of the court is to kind of answer big legal questions. We are asking it, the court to generally kind of deal with legislation in a way that perhaps it was not intended to do so. That's not a relatively new thing. That's kind of a facet of the court for a very long time, you know. One of my favorite Supreme Court cases is West Virginia v. Barnett, which has to do with whether you can force someone to say the Pledge of Allegiance, and uh, you can't. Note to Texas. Conservatives have already recognized, like, okay, if the court is going to be this important, then we have to play for the court. But it seems that Democrats and kind of liberal observers have not recognize that same thing. You know, the ruling you get in Obergefell v. Hodges without Anthony Kennedy on the court to write about the wonders and glories of marriage. You don't get those decisions without the people on the court, and you don't get the people on the court without having control of the Senate and kind of control of Congress. And I think that it's time for people, you know, liberals and Democrats to recognize that conservatives have been ahead of the game in terms of how to think about the court and how important the court actually is. And they've been ahead of this since like 1985. If the Supreme Court is going to hold this position in American life, it's time for everyone to recognize it equally. I mean, it's interesting to me that it actually hasn't become as much of a mobilizing issue on the left, even as, you know, we've seen 
a real rallying around the Affordable Care Act and like a clear sense like the Supreme Court has the power to dismantle Obamacare. Every session or two, there's another challenge that like everyone's like, well, that's like a silly legal challenge that like ultimately winds its way up to the Supreme Court. There's one right now in Texas that everyone was like, well, that has no chance of going anywhere, which I feel like in Obamacare terms is like the guarantee it'll be at the Supreme Court in a year. And, and, you know, you've had a flip on the Affordable Care Act where, you know, before when it was something, you know, a lot of politicians didn't want to run on, right now the majority of ads in the midterms for Democrats are all about health care and saving the Affordable Care Act from repeal. Um, You have something like Citizens United, which again, like, I feel like is something that could be a rallying cry for liberals, but it just doesn't seem to, you know, hold the same place in liberal movements as it has in conservatives which seems to hinge a lot on the politics of abortion, that, you know, Roe has, like, long been this rallying cry and this goal of the conservative movement to be able to overturn that ruling. And you've kind of had them in this holding pattern where you saw challenges, you know, come up and just not do well at the Supreme Court. Like, you had the challenge to um, Texas's—you had Texas's abortion laws that the Supreme Court— struck down, um, I think it was about two years ago or so. So you see the pro-life movement, like, sending up these challenges, like, passing these laws that they're not able to stick with. But it, it, I guess it's a little bit surprising to me, as people have rallied around the Affordable Care Act, it hasn't gone the next step to say, and what we really need to do to protect the Affordable Care Act is, like, make sure there aren't enough justices on the court who want to overturn it. Yeah, I mean, but I, I hope that this Kavanaugh becomes a turning point. In this, I mean, I think that we have seen I, – I saw somebody tweet that like it's a shame because the Supreme Court will lose its legitimacy because it's like one of the last safeguards we have against democratic backsliding. And I think that's really wrong. I mean from Bush v. Gore to the Shelby County ruling to the Citizens United ruling to the Bob McDonnell ruling, the Supreme Court has been way ahead of the curve in like tearing down the pillars of American democracy. It's true that putting Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court will delegitimize the Supreme Court. But like that's not the shame of this. Like that is good, right? Like the Supreme Court, as it has existed, has in my view been completely rogue, undemocratic, deserves delegitimization. And the blitheness with which Republicans are putting a hot-tempered, drunken, entitled liar on there is fitting and people should remember it. This guy red in the face insisting that despite being in like drinking frats at Yale, he couldn't have been a heavy drinker because he got into Yale. Like that is your Supreme Court, you know, like it's – I think – some something I want to get I, into. I'm quickly. so upset. Like, I, yeah, it's. I don't know. I think something I want to get into that came across from a lot of conservatives, and that I I genuinely do not currently understand, is the idea that how Democrats have reacted to the Ford allegations and to Kavanaugh is going to drive Republicans to the polls in November because they're like, oh, you know, this is going to push people towards Trump. One. Trump is already president. He's the person who nominated Kavanaugh. You know, Republicans hold the Senate and the House and Congress and, you know, the majority of state houses and governor's mansions throughout the country. We kind of had a little bit of this conversation uh, on our live show that we did from Austin, Texas yesterday, that the idea that Trump can be both, you know, he is the bulwark against liberalism, but 
liberalism did this under Trump is very confusing to me. But I also think that there's an element to which I joked in 2017, I think, that liberals are discovering the magical wonders of federalism and the idea of kind of like, oh, yeah, we should probably attempt to do these things on a state and local level. But I also think that it's worth noting that I don't know why the Supreme Court is not a driver for Democratic and liberal voters to the same extent it is for conservatives. I mean, outside of the issue of abortion, I mean, that I understand. But I, I do think that what we're going to see and what we're seeing, you know, I'm sure, Sarah, we've talked to a lot of people about this. And what you're seeing, especially from women, is the degree to which this is a major driver. And Trump isn't on the ballot in 2018, but a lot of Republicans are on the ballot in 2018. And part of getting people to vote is also getting some people to not vote. You know, you want to spur your base, but demoralize their base. And I feel as if with this, the idea that people will vote because something successful already happened. Yeah. If you have data on this, I would love to see it. But the idea of like, we were successful, we did the thing. You know, I think that you it's saw— like you could stay home because we did the thing. Right, exactly. And I think that you saw that a little bit with, you know, after the passage of the Affordable Care Act— Obviously, midterms are generally tough for whoever the party is in power. That's just a general rule. But the idea that Democrats at the time could be like, we did the successful thing. You should keep voting for us. You know, there's a reason why, in general, if you are going to become a grifter or a scammer, what you do is you do not say, we have grifted enough. The grift is over, but you should still send us money. No, no, no. You're like, no, no, no. We just need like one more day or one more check, and then we'll really get to doing whatever we're supposed to do. And you know, not that you should be taking advice from grifters or scammers, but the idea that a success here would thus push more people to vote conservative, I, I don't quite understand it. I don't get it either, um, but it seems to be one of the key arguments. Like, I think if you look at, like, abortion politics, like, one of the things, consistent patterns you see is that groups like Planned Parenthood and Narrow, they have a way easier time fundraising when there's a Republican in office because they can send out these things about all these attempts to restrict access. Like, that is the time when they're able to, and you see this right now, that they're able to mobilize people to protests. I don't, I, I'm sure there are, like, election strategists who do this for a living and who's smarter than I am, but I have also been confused by the need to get this done before the midterms and the framing of, oh, we need to advertise to our base that we have been successful. Then it's like, well, you know, mission accomplished, right? This is this is why I do go back to like the big picture, gender politics, consent norms change. Like they are not saying it, but like I think that a fair number of older men especially – think it's important to draw a line in the sand and, like, go to bat for people who are accused of having been abusive toward women decades ago in the past. That, like, what has been happening with Me Too is frightening and, like, run amok. And that, like, you could see the the raw anger of Lindsey Graham, how apologetic the Judiciary Committee Republicans were to Brett Kavanaugh, right? How unconcerned they were with his truthfulness. You know what I mean? Like it didn't 
it didn't bother. They didn't even defend it. They're not even addressing it. Like with with um, Ford, her credibility was at issue. Nobody was interested in Brett Kavanaugh's credibility, right? Because they don't think that what he did was wrong. They think that what is wrong is to use that kind of behavior against successful person. Like Lindsey Graham said this really explicitly, right? That like. The kind of bad person the Democrats are trying to paint Brett Kavanaugh as couldn't have gone on to have this successful career. Kavanaugh said he got into Yale without any connections. All he had was a <laughs> lobbyist dad, a district attorney mom, and a private fanciest school. private school in Maryland. He pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. So he can't have been this hard-partying bad boy who's in the Rehoboth Beach fa- Police Department fan club, right? And, like, it's a point of— principle. Like they don't – just like Matt Schlapp, you know, he tweeted that photo where he somehow like cropped the Senate Judiciary Committee Democrats so that it was Harris, Booker, and Hirono all sitting next to each other. And he said like conservative voters, take a look at this, right? Yeah. And like that's like there's, you know, elemental fears. And like Brett Kavanaugh stands for order and hierarchy in every possible way way, up to and including the idea that pushing around a drunk 15-year-old once 35 years ago is just not really wrong. And I think they're taking that stand and, you know, I mean, I think they're they're probably going to win. I think it's interesting also because I feel as if I'm interested to see the manifestations of this conversation like six months from now. Or you know how we deal with it when we're not in in the midst of it, but I do think it's interesting how Kavanaugh's response also played into you know there was a like what goes around comes around angle. I I, I keep referencing like you know does anyone remember like the confirmation hearings of like Samuel Alito uh-huh. or just like the idea that. What you want from a Supreme Court confirmation hearing is the most boring thing possible. And the idea that, you know, Kavanaugh references like the Clintons in his statement and talks about, you know, this is just the Democrats coming after me. And then you're like, oh, and we should add you to the Supreme Court to, you know, help handle five, four decisions. That's concerning. Okay. We're going to have to wrap this up. But thanks, guys. We will be back uh, next week. We're going to be at three episodes a week. Uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, th- Friday. Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday All until the, the midterms and also the Wednesday after the midterms. Uh, it's going to be amazing. There's going to be a lot of good stuff there. Thank you to our engineer, Griffin Tanner. Thanks, um, Matt and Jane, for being here and doing this podcast with us. Yeah. Um, and back in your feeds on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. <laughs>